World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, filling in for Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. When 2020 began, Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman, may have expected a quietly successful year, reorienting the economy and rebuilding his international reputation. Thanks to the coronavirus and an oil price war, it's not working out that way. And one of the world's oldest figurative paintings was recently discovered in a limestone mine in Indonesia. We pay a visit to find out more about the fight to save the 44,000-year-old scene. First up, though. For years, America's economy was a jobs machine. As the long expansion after the global financial crisis rolled on, employment kept climbing and unemployment kept falling. In February, the jobless rate was the lowest in 50 years, just 3.4%. The coronavirus outbreak is sending that machine screeching suddenly into reverse. It is staggering right now. We're having businesses shudder. We're seeing hundreds of thousands of New Jerseyans uh, applying for unemployment insurance. Yesterday, on our sister podcast, The Economist Asks, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker told us the impact the pandemic was already having on the job market in the Garden State. We are seeing runs on our food banks that are extreme and, and threatening the capacity there. There's not an area of our society that I don't see being affected by the economic crisis combined with this health crisis. It's a similar scene across many parts of the country. The past two weeks have seen more Americans filing for unemployment insurance than during the first six months of the Great Recession. The people have been absolutely transfixed by this chart, which shows initial claims for unemployment benefit. And it's gone from a few hundred thousand uh, per week up to uh, the latest figures show, you know, over six million people applying for claims. Callum Williams is a senior economics writer for The Economist. It's important not to confuse that with the with the unemployment rate. This is just a measure of the, a number of people per week that are are claiming unemployment insurance. It's it's sort of tempting to infer from this that you know unemployment is going to rise by sort of fourteen to fifteen times. That's that's probably not going to happen. What really matters is the is the unemployment rate, and that's really the number to focus on. And what can we say beyond the fact that we know it's going to get worse over the next few months? So as you say, everyone knows it's going to get worse. Now, the survey that is used to estimate the unemployment rate, they kind of go around and ask households and businesses, you know, who's employed, who's not, who's been laid off, who hasn't, all that kind of stuff. That was largely done uh, towards the beginning and the middle of March. And that, as everyone knows, that's that's kind of slightly before all of the lockdowns uh, in the US really got going. What 
people are really looking for now is the figures that are going to be released at the beginning of May, which are for April, and the beginning and the beginning of June, which are for May. And over those two months, people are expecting a, a very rapid increase in unemployment, probably above 10%. So it seems pretty clear we know there's going to be a big rise in unemployment and it's likely to be concentrated in certain industries. How are policymakers going to be able to respond? Is there a playbook here? Well, some of this you've already seen. So, for instance, if you look at the stimulus bill that's now been signed into law by the president, there's sort of specific uh, bits in there which are intended to help uh, small businesses that are in the kind of leisure sector. I mean, I think the other thing that will start to dawn on policymakers uh, when we move above kind of 10% or so unemployment is that the measures that have been put in place to help people to survive without work may, for many people, be insufficient. So they're talking about, well, they are going to be sending checks uh, worth a uh, thousand or two thousand dollars to households. That's kind of great for maybe a few weeks or a month. Uh, but if you know we're in a period where unemployment is very high, then I think we'll start to see more people talking about another round of checks and f- sort of and, pe- and perhaps increasing the size of those checks as well. And how is the increase in joblessness and policymakers' response to it in the United States compare with what we're seeing elsewhere in Western Europe, for example? There's something that appears to be unfolding in America compared with, say, Europe, and I include Britain in in Europe, is that it seems as though unemployment may rise further in America. And the, the reason for that is that a lot of European countries have implemented pretty massive policies that affect kind of all or almost all businesses, which give businesses pretty strong incentives to uh, to retain uh, staff, even if they're placed on furlough, rather than actually firing them. Um, the stimulus part package that has been passed by America offers some incentives to do that, but they're a lot weaker. And so I, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, by June or by July, if the American unemployment rate is perhaps slightly above uh, the European unemployment rate, which would be, a, you know, a reversal of a pretty long-standing historical trend. Why do you think there's been this transatlantic difference in approach? I mean, that's a really good question. It's it's a difference that has existed for a long time. So typically, the European response to recessions is to enact policies which try and sort of convince employers to hold on to their workers for as long as possible. The kind of Anglo-Saxon way of doing things, which is really has historically been Britain and, and the US, has been to allow labour markets to adjust kind of quote unquote naturally. So you see a kind of quick rise in unemployment in the early part of the recession, but then by the end you see a quick reallocation of labour to, to fast growing sectors. My sense is what's happened is that America has kind of basically continued with an approach that it's had for a long time. What we've got in the UK is a kind of realisation that potentially the shock from coronavirus is so significant that you need to have an appropriate change in, in policy. My my speculation on this would be that the sort of way in which policy is made in the UK gives a huge amount of discretion to a very small number of people at the top of government, whereas in America there's much more horse trading, there's much more, much more many more compromises need to be reached. And so it's probably somewhat harder to do such a big U-turn in policy compared with the UK. And when these big economic shocks come along, people economists, politicians, journalists always look for historical parallels and look for lessons that can be taken from the past and applied to the present. Are there any here that are particularly helpful, do you think? Well, one interesting historical parallel is with Louisiana in 2005. So in the summer of 2005, Louisiana was in a position much like the US economy as a whole was in early 2020, where the economy is doing fairly well, unemployment is near historical lows. And then, of course, Hurricane Katrina hit. And what you saw 
uh, is that in a single month, the unemployment rate more than doubled. It went from sort of four-ish percent to over 11%. So it was a really significant shock. The kind of encouraging news from that example is that once the carnage had ended, the unemployment rate fell back down to its to its previous level really extremely quickly. I suppose I would caution against a, a kind of read across here too much, really for one main reason, which is that you know, Hurricane Katrina happened over a short period of time. And so activity that had stopped could restart fairly quickly. Of course, in the case of the coronavirus pandemic, the shutdown could be going on for months and months. And if you look at the forecasts that are being put out by various economists, basically no one expects America to kind of hit the lows of 3 4% unemployment until way out in 2023, 2024. So the effects of this shutdown are going to last for a very long time. Callum, thank you very much. Thank you. For more on the impact that COVID-19 is having on America, check out our podcast, Checks and Balance, where we look at the United States from a global perspective. This week, The Economist's US editor, John Prido, examines the models behind America's lockdown to find out how long it could last. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. After alienating much of the international community, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, appears to have one ally at least. Yesterday, Donald Trump tweeted his appreciation of the country's de facto leader. He called him his great friend and hailed an apparently imminent agreement with Russia to cut oil production, sending the oil price climbing. The Saudis have been waging a price war with Russia that threatens further damage to America's oil industry which has already been hammered by a plunge in demand caused by the coronavirus pandemic. In fact, no such deal has been done, and the oil price has receded. And MBS, as he's commonly known, still has a long way to go to rebuild his image, beyond Mr Trump's Twitter feed. World leaders distanced themselves from him after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, a journalist dismembered by Saudi agents in 2018. He's also been heavily criticised for pursuing a war in neighbouring Yemen, that's caused a humanitarian catastrophe. And he's had hundreds of royals, ministers and businessmen arrested. It's claimed they were plotting against the crown prince. This year had offered him the chance of rehabilitation. The war in Yemen seemed to be winding down and the kingdom is set to host the G20 summit at the end of November. But as with much of the rest of the world, 2020 is not panning out in the way MBS might have hoped. This was supposed to be a quiet, constructive year for Mohammed bin Salman. Greg Karlstrom is our Middle East correspondent. Ever since he became crown prince in 2016, it seemed like Saudi Arabia lurched from one crisis to the next. You had the war in Yemen, 
the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the roundup at the Ritz, where dozens of influential princes and businessmen were detained in a luxury hotel. Uh, it seemed like an endless string of crises. But when you spoke to Saudi officials a few months ago, there was a lot of optimism that 2020 would be a chance to uh, reset all of that, to focus on economic development at home, and to try and patch up their relations with countries around the world. And how has 2020 gone for him so far? 2020 has not gone according to plan. You had, first of all, about a month ago, uh, another round of arrests of influential princes. Uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has detained some of the most high-profile members of the royal family. And that including the Crown Prince's uncle uh, and dozens of civil servants and uh, employees of the defense ministry. Then you had this oil price war. Saudi Arabia has slashed its export oil prices for April and is also planning to boost production in a move that has sparked... A Which has sent the price of Brent crude below $30 a barrel to its lowest level uh, in nearly two decades, which has blown a hole not only in the Saudi budget, uh, but in the budgets of oil-producing states around the Middle East. Uh, and of course, uh, now we have this uh, pandemic. We have the coronavirus, which... Uh, is causing economic turmoil for Saudi Arabia and for everyone else around the world. A lot of this looks like troubles of his own making. He chose to lock up the princes. He picked the oil price fight with Russia. So what do decisions like this say about MBS's leadership? Well, there's been an ongoing debate uh, amongst diplomats over the past few years about how to assess Mohammed bin Salman some of them, to put it very crudely, they think all of this has been the growing pains of a new leader who's trying to corral the difficult royal family and, and trying to come to grips with being the crown prince and soon to be the king of Saudi Arabia. Other people look at this and they see something fundamentally rash and impulsive about his persona and his governing style. And it, it worries them because this is a leader who can realistically expect to be in power for decades. Uh, and I think more and more uh, amongst, again, diplomats and analysts, they're shifting towards the latter option there, where they look at the roundup of these princes, for example, the official line from the royal court has been that they were scheming against the crown prince, that they were plotting something against him. At the same time, many of these people have already started to be released, which seems like an odd thing to do if there was some sort of a plot or a, a coup afoot. And so it seems to be, in fact, the crown prince once again sending a message to detractors, both within the royal family and in Saudi Arabia writ large, that there is no space for dissent, that there is no space for criticism. Uh, with the oil price war, he's said to have overruled his own half-brother, the oil minister, uh, who was in favor of making another deal with Russia and trying to keep prices relatively stable. And so I think there's a growing sense that uh, he is an impulsive leader, and diplomats and governments are trying to come to grips with what that means going forward. And now on top of all this, Saudi Arabia, like every other country, has got coronavirus to deal with. What's the impact of the disease been on the country? So far, the disease itself has been fairly limited in Saudi Arabia. It has fewer than 2,000 confirmed cases. Uh, it moved very quickly, quicker than a lot of other countries in the Middle East to try and contain the spread of the virus. So they shut down pilgrimages to Mecca. They closed the country to international flights. Uh, I think the immediate effect of it is going to be a, a second-order consequence. Of course, the Saudi economy is heavily dependent on oil. Uh, it contributes about half of Saudi GDP and 80 to 90 percent of exports. With demand plummeting around the globe right now, Saudi Arabia has a lot of oil that it's going to struggle to sell. Uh, and then, of course, later this year uh, will be the Hajj, the annual pilgrimage to Mecca, which is due to start in late July. 
The Saudi government hasn't made a final decision about whether or not it's still going forward, but they seem to be laying the groundwork for possibly canceling the pilgrimage, which is, after oil, the largest contributor to the Saudi GDP. And what about the prince's longer-term problems, the ones that, that he began the, the year with, if you like? I mean, for example, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi was extraordinarily damaging to his international reputation at the time and, and to that of the regime. Is that now faded, or do you think that will continue to dog him? In a sense, it has faded with time. Uh, it's been a year and a half now, and countries around the world uh, have really stopped talking even about accountability for the murder itself let alone any kind of a broader reassessment of relations with Saudi Arabia. So uh, in that sense, the immediate fury, the immediate impact uh, certainly has faded. But I think, again, the murder was perhaps for many people around the world, the, the first moment where they stepped back and started to question what sort of a leader uh, Mohammed bin Salman was and, and just how, again, erratic and, and rash and impulsive he was inclined to be. And I think that image that was cemented for many people with this murder is going to linger and is going to dog him for years to come. And what about his position now? As as you've said, he's had a, a pretty dreadful start to the year. So has this shaken his grip on power at all or, or his standing? Does he face any potential challenges? I think there's a lot of wishful thinking about that from uh, critics of the crown prince, both within Saudi Arabia and around the world. And there are certainly a lot of those critics Internationally, you know, you look at America, where traditionally Saudi Arabia has had very strong relations. Uh, he's alienated Democrats with the war in Yemen, with his embrace of Trump. Uh, he angered some Republicans with uh, Khashoggi's murder. Uh, so relations with America are quite bad at the moment. European governments have similar concerns. So you have international opposition and you certainly have people within Saudi Arabia who are frustrated with the crown prince whether because of his policies, because they've seen their allowances and privileges curtailed over the past few years, or because their branch of the royal family has been edged out of power. In spite of that, though, in spite of all of this unhappiness, uh, is there any organized opposition to his rule? Is there anyone within the royal family in Saudi Arabia plotting to depose him or in a position to depose him? Uh, there's no evidence of that. Greg, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. To get a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist, a trusted source of information and, well, intelligence for 175 years. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. Late last year, scientists dated a cave painting on the Indonesian island of Sulawesi. They estimated it was at least 44,000 years old. That makes it the world's oldest known storytelling art. When I learned about it, I knew I just had to go there. Krithika Varagur writes for 1843, The Economist's sister magazine. I immediately scrambled to find out who would be my way in. And... Like much archaeology, this was a really collaborative enterprise. There were like over a dozen people involved. Eventually, I found the person who seemed most responsible on the ground, which was an archaeologist named Budianto Hakim. Lukisan yang ada di gua Bulusipong Kabupaten Pangkep adalah salah satu lukisan yang sangat. He just looked the part of the rugged field archaeologist to a T. He was wearing kind of khaki outfit. He was chain smoking, even though it was 8.30 when I met him in the morning. 
I couldn't compare him to anyone else except <laughs> Indiana Jones. And I said, you just seem to me like Indiana Jones. Can I call you Indonesia Jones? And he said, sure, whatever makes you happy. He said, I'll bring you to see the painting, but it's actually not up to me. It's up to someone else because this painting is inside a mining concession. I asked Budi how much of a threat this was to the painting. And he said, it's not ideal, but for scientists working in this part of the world, that's the deal. So they'll have to make the best of the situation. Me and Budi started driving from the Sulawesi Heritage Center to the painting, but we had to stop for about an hour at the Tanasa Cement Company's headquarters. He said every single time that even these archaeologists had to mine there, they had to do it this way. They had to get permission from this mining company. Because it turns out that this painting is inside an enormous limestone mining concession in South Sulawesi. We climbed about two stories up a cave. It wasn't as hard for me as it would have been for them because they had set up a ladder at that point after a couple of years of excavating it. It's in a kind of annex with natural sunlight penetrating inside so I could easily see most of the panel. When I saw this painting that for all intents and purposes is the oldest storytelling art known to man, I had no other reaction but to burst into tears. This artwork depicts a hunting scene. It was made by homo sapiens, so people like us, but the people in the painting, I was surprised to see, are incredibly small. So it's not a realistic artwork. It's made with a kind of pigment called ochre, which is a reddish terracotta color today, might have been brighter in the time they made it. These animals loom much larger than these people in the painting, which seems to be a feature of prehistoric art in many parts of the world, which suggests this kind of similar relationship to the environment, where animals in the natural world loomed incredibly large. It was not in great shape. A lot of the surface was heavily peeling. The best preserved part of it is this animal called an Enoa. The first thing that struck me about it is that it's so stylized. It's not a direct representation. It's kind of in motion, its legs are flayed, and you can see the brushstrokes of this artist. When I was looking at the oldest painting in the world, having this kind of communion, the entire land was rocked by something like a thunderclap, which happened every hour minimum. And it turned out to be the mining explosions that keep taking place all around this painting. Throughout their excavation, they were working under the, exactly these conditions with heavy mining going on all around. Budi was born and raised and still lives here, and he's incredibly proud that some of the oldest artwork in the world came from this island. And he told me so many times. As we were driving away from the concession, he told me, there are so many more paintings here, and we have to find those too. It's the least we can do for our ancestors. That was Krithika Varagur, who writes for 1843. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. See you back here on Monday.
world peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.